0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine Seminar Series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Well, thank you very much. That's a first, actually. So... Um, right. uh, I'm Ian Milne, the Sybil Librarian here at the Royal College of Physicians, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Elaine Charling, who's going to help me uh, with our talk today. Uh, Elaine works for the College, uh, but she's also an actress who's appeared in Shakespeare. Um, she did a show on Kathleen Ferrier at the Fringe a couple of years back. And Um, In um, 2013, she read Cullen letters for us uh, here at the college. Um, And it's great to see some familiar faces here, uh, which which always slightly surprises me, and people come up at the end and chat. uh, And, um, I mean, obviously the reason we do this is to show off the collection here in the college. Um, and it's an excuse to uh, get out some of the nice books that are in the strong room downstairs. Um, So I I am interested in why people come, particularly why some people have come more than one year. Uh, So I did ask uh, a gentleman yesterday why he came, and he said, well, um, I've got a disabled parking sticker and I can park right outside. and then, um, really, just, just probably just wanting more trouble, I asked someone else, and they said, well, there wasn't anything else on at 11 o'clock. Um, and um, probably more importantly, for the people sitting in the front row, there's no audience participation, so it's perfectly safe to sit in the front row. Um, again, it's probably wrong to uh, read out a review at the start of a show, Um, but um, I had to share our our review with you. We got a four-star review, and it said, I have to add, the loos are the best I think I've ever encountered in a fringe venue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're going to uh, um, talk about five plants, uh, five books, and... uh, Five physicians, I think it's slightly more than five physicians. Um, And if there is any theme, I guess it's the uh, connections between them um, and also the what I hope you'll find fascinating life stories of some of the people we're going to be talking about. Um, We were we chose the topic this year because um, one of the fellows of the college. Professor Michael Lee has just um, uh, written this book, which has just been published, called uh, Plants, Healers, and Killers, and uh, that's been extremely useful when we've been uh, uh, putting this together. I think Waterstones are supposed to be uh, stocking this, and I'll be, uh, and the Royal Botanic Gardens certainly are, and I'll be getting back to this as we proceed. Can you hear me okay at the back, by the way? Okay, yeah. Um, uh, So, part one, we're going to talk about the Autumn Crocus. Uh, Our physician is Sir Robert Sybold, and our book is the Edinburgh Pharmacopeia. Um, Here is the Autumn Crocus, a small plant, um, and it's been known to have a medical effect for over 200 years. Colchium is the active ingredient in the autumn crocus, and it was one of the first plants in Europe recognized to have a specific effect on a disease. Uh, The disease is gout, rather than on the symptoms of the disease. Until colchium began to be used at the end of the 18th century, there were no specific cures for gout, and the unfortunate victims were often given laudanum, an opium solution, uh, sweetened with port or sherry, which, if it did anything, made the condition worse. And that's what happened to a famous sufferer from gout, uh, King George IV. Uh, This is uh, the statue of King George IV that you will find uh, just round the corner um, at the uh, top of Hanover Street at the junction with George Street. Um, he's, he's portrayed in a relatively heroic fashion here, but this is possibly a more accurate uh, portrayal of King George. Um, in 1817, he was ingesting 1,200 drops of laudanum daily without any relief of the pain from his gout. And he's reported to have announced to his personal physicians, uh, gentlemen, I have taken your half measures long enough to please you. From now on, I shall take Colchium to please myself. Crocus features in this 200 page snapshot of therapeutics in 1699. And it's a bit misleading uh, looking at these pages Uh, up on the screen, because they're actually from this tiny book here. Uh, This is the Edinburgh Pharmacopeia. Um, The reason it's so small is it's supposed to be a book that you would just carry about with you to be used uh, at bedsides. And it's actually vanishingly rare, probably because it is so small. Um, To tell the story of the Pharmacopeia, we actually have to go back even further to 1681 when the Royal College of Physicians um, was granted a charter by King Charles II. Uh, King Charles is actually um, rather uh, not terribly usefully hiding behind the seat here. You can, you can hopefully see him at the end. Um, uh, he was One of the initial aims of the college, once it was granted a charter, uh, was to reform and control pharmacy, and they hoped that the adoption of a list of drugs approved by them would push up standards, and to do this, they needed a pharmacopeia. Um, and They wanted to get consensus, so they formed a pharmacopeia committee with eight members to agree on the list. Um, however, it took the committee 18 years to agree and produce the book. Uh, The 1699 pharmacopoeia is in three parts. Uh, The first part consists of 22 pages devoted to animal, vegetable, and mineral simples. Uh, And simples is is the clue. They're just sort of one-off things like plants. So plant medicine is vital and that brings us on to our physician, uh, Sir Robert sybold who is regarded as the founder of the college. Now, I, I have complained that, uh, as he's the founder of the college, I'm not quite sure why his um, uh, portrait is sort of a bit hidden over in this corner. That's the, uh, what you're seeing on the screen is here. But actually, it, it's probably quite appropriate because sybold lived in very turbulent times, and uh, I think he probably had to spend quite a few, well, we we know he had to spend quite a lot of his life hiding in corners. Um, He was born in 1641 into a prosperous Fife-landed family. He was tempted to um, have a career in the church, but he chose uh, medicine. Um, He built up a medical practice in Edinburgh, in what was a very dangerous time. As his practice grew, he was able to turn his mind to more public activities. And his first project was the creation in 1667 of a physic garden. One reason we know about uh, Sybil's gardening is that he wrote an autobiography There aren't many autobiographies that cover this period. This is um, uh, contemporary to the time that uh, Pepys was writing his famous diary. Um, And uh, Elaine is now going to read a bit from Sybil's autobiography. You're you're hearing Sybil's voice here, and in fact, and all the uh, readings that Elaine will do are from the actual people of the time.
1: I'd become acquainted with Patrick Murray, the Laird of Livingstone, and I frequently went to Livingstone, where he had collected plants that grew in the country and foreign ones, near to a thousand. I made Dr Balfour his acquaintance with Livingstone, which, upon Livingstone's going abroad and corresponding with the doctor, gave rise to the design of establishing a medicine garden at Edinburgh. Dr. Balfour and I obtained of John Brown, gardener of the North Yards in the Abbey, an enclosure of some 40 foot of measure every way. We had, by this time, become acquainted with Master James Sutherland, a youth who, by his own industry, had attained great knowledge of the plants, and he undertook the charge of the culture of the garden. By what we procured from Livingston's and other gardens and brought in from the country, we made a collection of eight or nine hundred plants. Some of the surgeon apothecaries who then had much power in Edinburgh opposed us, dreading that it might usher in a college of physicians. Thanks to the care and dexterity of Dr Balfour, these were made friends to the design and assisted us in obtaining the lease of the garden belonging to the Trinity Hospital. After this, we applied ourselves with much care to embellish the fabric of the garden and import plants from all places into this garden. Some gifts likewise were obtained of money from the exchequer and the Lord's obsession and faculty of advocates, and by Dr Balfour's procurement, considerable packets of seeds and plants were yearly sent hither from abroad, and the students of medicine got directions to send him from all the places they traveled to, by which means the garden increased considerably every year.
0: I I like the idea of 17th century students sending uh, plants and seeds back to Sybald. Uh, he continued his gardening interests when he became he was made geographer royal for Scotland, and he started writing a two-volume book surveying the natural and cultural resources of Scotland. Uh, the book is called Scotia Illustrata. In fact, only uh, one volume was published, and as you can see, uh, plants featured quite heavily in the book in the 1670s, uh, Sybild made a very influential friend when he began to be consulted by the ambitious Royalist politician, James Drummond, the Earl of Perth. Uh, this was a time of uh, serious religious strife um, and Sybild rose with his dubious patron uh, until uh, the Edinburgh mob uh, rioted against Perth and uh, his friends, and Sybild was one of the mob's chosen targets, uh, um, and Elaine is going to disc- uh,
1: read Sybild's account of this from his memoir. The rabble judged that I'd made the earl of the Catholic persuasion and vowed to be avenged on me, and accordingly, the 1st of February, while I was sitting in my own chamber reading, they came in a tumult to my house to assassinate me. I had been warned in the forenoon of their design by a lady that had overheard them, and had thereupon made my will and prepared myself for death. And when they came to force their entry to the house, three or four hundred of them, I fell upon my knees and commended my soul to God. And then I went out at the back door.
0: After um, after considerable adventures, uh, Sybil escaped to London, uh, but he, he wasn't happy in London. Uh, Realised that uh, his his religion changing hadn't really helped his career, so he he returned to Edinburgh and renounced Catholicism. Um, we may be being a, a little unkind on Sybil here. He was a, a a remarkable man, but he. Uh, He's got um, uh, just a touch of the Victor Meldrews. He's a bit of a moaner in his uh, autobiography, Um, and there's about two pages when he lists all the disasters and accidents that have befallen him. Um, uh, And I I think he was probably the first person to uh, suffer from a golfing accident, because he recounts that on 16th October, 1690, Uh, As he was um, coming back from seeing a patient in Leith Links, uh, he was struck by a boy, said to be Captain Taylor's son, of 14 or 15 years, with the back of a golf club, with much force between the eyes. Um, There was another accident which befell him, which uh, uh, hopefully doesn't happen to us now. His uh, spurs caught together and he fell down a flight of stairs. Sybald was also a little unlucky in his burial place. Um, He he died in the 1720s um, and was uh, buried in uh, Greyfriars Churchyard. Um, He's in the um, south corner of the churchyard. And until recently, there wasn't um, a a plaque uh, recognizing this. The the college has now put up a plaque on the the grave. Um, He's remembered here, of course, uh, because of his books, um, I'm known as the Sybald Librarian and in fact uh, in uh, 1682 it was a gift of books from Sybild that started the library here. Um, and he's also uh, remembered by a small wild plant uh, known as Sybaldia procumbens, it was named Sybaldia uh, by um, Carl Linnaeus, the great um, Swedish botanist. Uh, we uh, did try and get a Siboldia procumbens for the little physic garden um, that you can go and see in the courtyard after this, but uh, I think it, it really doesn't do terribly well in, in decent compost. So it, it's in one of the blue uh, flower pots, but um, not looking as good as the example in the slide. Right, we will move on. Uh, A few years to a slightly more settled time, and we're going to talk about foxglove, Dr John Hope and Blackwall's herbal. Um, Foxglove is a familiar, common and attractive plant, and drugs prepared from the dried leaves are still used medically to treat heart conditions although in recent years they have to a certain degree been replaced with other medicines which are considered safer. Um, Despite its use in medicine, digitalis is toxic and ingestion of too much uh, of the leaf or indeed any part of the plant causes harm to the body and may even be fatal. It was the English scientist William Withering, who was responsible for introducing the use of the foxglove leaf, though it it had been used in uh, just herbal medicine for quite a long time before Withering described it in a book in the 18th century. Uh, He also, importantly, worked to establish the correct dose, which is particularly pertinent in the case of this plant, as its therapeutic dose and its toxic dose are very similar. It was described in the uh, 1730s in Elizabeth Blackwell's A Curious Herbal, containing 500 cuts of the most useful plants which are now used in the practice of physic.
1: It grows to be about three foot high. The leaves have a little down upon them. Flowers are red, spotted with white, and grow all on one side of the stalks. Foxglove grows in hedges and lanes, and flowers in June and July. This plant is but rarely used inwardly, being a strong emetic, working with violence upwards and downwards. (laughs) Parkinson extols a decoction of it in ale with polypody roots as an approved medicine for the falling sickness. The late Dr House commends an ointment made of the flowers and May butter for scrofulous ulcers which run much, dressing them with the ointment and purging two or three times a week with proper purges.
0: You, you might wonder why uh, the bit that Elaine has just read is on an engraved plate, that this is a copper plate engraving because it would have been much easier to have produced this in 1739 uh, using movable type, because you have to get it absolutely right. If you make one mistake when you are engraving the plate, it's really difficult to go back. Um, and we think the reason is to do with uh, a, a dispute with printers, um, and uh, the the story is, uh, is told um, in Alexander Chalmers, the general and biographical dictionary containing an historical and critical account of the lives and writings of the most eminent persons in every nation, particularly the British and Irish from the earliest accounts to the present time, where there is an entry on Elizabeth Blackwell.
1: Elizabeth Blackwell, an ingenious lady to whom physic was indebted for the most complete set of figures of the medicinal plants, was the daughter of a merchant of Aberdeen and born probably about 1700. Her husband received a university education and was early distinguished for his classical knowledge. In London, he set up as a printer and carried on several large works until 1734 when he became bankrupt and was imprisoned in Highgate Prison. To relieve his distresses, Mrs. Blackwell, having a genius for drawing and painting, exerted all her talents. And, understanding that a herbal of medicinal plants was greatly wanted, she exhibited to physicians some specimens of her art in painting plants. They approved so highly of them as to encourage her to prosecute a work. She took up her residence opposite the Chelsea Physic Garden in order to facilitate her design by receiving the plants as fresh as possible. After she'd completed her drawings, she engraved them on copper and coloured the prints with her own hands. During her abode in Chelsea, she was frequently visited by persons of quality and many scientific people who admired her performances and patronised her undertaking. The first volume was published in 1737 The second volume was finished in 1739 and the whole published under the title A Curious Herbal containing 500 cuts of the most useful plants which are now used in the practice of physic. Each plate is accompanied with an engraved page containing the Latin and English official names, followed by a short description of the plant and a summary of its qualities and uses. After these, occurs the name in various other languages. These illustrations were the share her husband took in the work. In fact, it's, it's possible that
0: Alexander, while in prison, actually engraved the plates there, but it was uh, an extraordinary achievement um, to be, uh, come from Aberdeen be stuck in London Um, to go to the garden to draw these plants, then to um, get the plates engraved and to hand color them. Um, I think uh, this is again from the book, and this may well be Elizabeth portrayed here. Um, She was also um, a pioneer against gender bias. Um, There's comment uh, at the same time from the Reverend Richard Polwell in is The Unsexed Females, a poem addressed to the author of The Pursuits of Literature, published in London
1: by and Davis. Botany has lately become a fashionable amusement with ladies. But how the study of the sexual system of plants can accord with female modesty, I am not able to comprehend.
0: The, the reverend continued rather darkly.
1: Several times I have seen boys and girls botanizing together. <laughs> uh,
0: unfortunately, there, there is there's rather a sad ending to the uh, black hole story. Um, Elizabeth's book is a big success. She clears her husband's debts and um, he is released from prison after spending two years there. Uh, he, perhaps with the knowledge he'd gained producing the book, uh, changes careers from being a printer to being an agricultural advisor, which he has some success in Britain uh, uh, doing this, and in fact is spotted by the Swedish ambassador and goes over to Sweden in 1742, where he advises King Frederick of Sweden on uh, agriculture. Unfortunately, uh, Alexander, who seems to be one of these guys that just pushes things a little bit too far, um, gets involved in a plot to alter the Swedish succession and place the Duke of Cumberland onto the Swedish throne. Uh, This didn't end well, and Alexander was condemned to death for high treason and executed in Sweden on 29th of July, 1747. Uh, Elizabeth was just about to go and join him in Sweden when this happened. Uh, She died 11 years later in 1758, and appropriately is buried in the churchyard of uh, Chelsea Old Church. Um, It's actually an even more tangled story than the one we have related, and uh, Elaine's reading, which was from a Victorian account, if you are interested, I would recommend uh, this book about um, uh, Alexander Cruden, who wrote an encyclopedia of the Bible. Uh, Cruden um, also uh, uh, really fancied Elizabeth, and the, the whole tortured tale is, is revealed in this book, which is a great read. Um, we have one further postscript to uh, the Blackwell story. Um, uh, this is a scan of a letter in the College Archive written 247 years ago on 7th March 1768 by the first Scottish born British Prime Minister, John Stuart, the third Earl of Bute. Bute was passionately interested in botany, in fact, I think he was much more interested in botany than uh, politics. Uh, and uh, he had a greenhouse at Kew um, and that featured um, an extension for his botanical library and also a private gate into the grounds of Kew Palace where he helped Princess Augusta to uh, create Kew Gardens. And Bute uh, wrote this letter uh, from his Luton Who estate in Bedfordshire to a fellow of the college, his family friend Dr John Hope, a notable Scottish medic and botanist. He's saying, I've sent by carrier the 12th volume of Hill's Vegetable System, and I've taken the liberty to put up with it some fine editions of books of botany that did not appear to me to be in the catalogue you sent me. May I desire them to be placed with the vegetable system in the library. I enclose the list consisting of seven articles and shall be glad to hear they arrive safe as paintings are subject to be injured by damp. Uh, It was a fabulous gift that Bute was sending to the college, and you can see uh, some of the books uh, next door in the exhibition we've put on. Uh, Hope uh, was the professor of botany and materia medica, and he was a college president here as well. In 1784, I think he became president, As you might expect, he had a long connection with Edinburgh's Physic Gardens. In fact, it it was hope linked with Bute that in 1763, um, uh, brought the uh, Abbey and Trinity Gardens here together on a five acre site on the west side of Leith Walk, now Haddington Place. Um, And that was where the gardener's cottage that is uh, now being reconstructed in the botanics walls, This was a cottage where Hope taught and um, it's been taken from Leith Walk stone by stone and is currently being um, uh, reconstructed in the botanics. And Hope is also known, uh, the John Hope gateway to the Royal Botanic Garden is named after Hope. To get back to the book, uh, it, this is um, the 12th volume of Hill's Vegetable System. And as you can see, it's, it's rather splendid, and this is uh, Bute's crest here. So it's a, a fantastic, um, generous gift that the college has had. And uh, Bute's letter is basically saying, um, I've sent you this really generous gift, and you haven't acknowledged the fact that any of the books have arrived. So um, uh, hope who we can see here uh, gardening, um, has a bit of a problem on his hands. Uh, What's he going to do? This is really quite embarrassing to the college. So he goes off to see the college president, (laughs) uh, Sir Stuart (laughs) Threepland. And uh, here is is Threepland. And as you may have guessed uh, from his name, Sir Stuart Threepland, was involved with Bonnie Prince Charlie's uprising in 1745. And Stuart, uh, in fact, was the chief medical officer to uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie. So he would have been at Culloden, and the Duke of Cumberland, who we mentioned uh, earlier, uh, was on the other side. Uh, after Culloden, uh, Threepland escaped to France and joined the prince in Paris. After an amnesty, he returned to Edinburgh and established himself as a successful physician and was elected president of the Royal College of Physicians in 4th December 1766. So Hope and Threepland have to come up with an excuse, uh, and Elaine will read the excuse. You can see if you'd be convinced.
1: My Lord. By particular desire of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, I beg leave to trouble your Lordship with their most grateful acknowledgement for the elegant and genteel present of books you have been pleased to honour us with. They are both useful and ornamental to our library. The College thought it improper to interrupt your Lordship's attention from affairs of greater moment by intimating the arrival of each volume of Hill's Vegetable System, of which twelve volumes have come in course, and merit well the just sentiments that the College has of your benevolence to their society, confirmed by a fresh testimony of your Lordship's goodness in this valuable present. The book shall have, most deservedly, a proper place in the library or hall the physicians are about to build, and which they intend to make as genteel and elegant a piece of architecture as the college funds will permit. I have the honor to be, with the greatest respect, my lord, your lordship's most obedient and most humble servant. Stuart Threepland, Doctor, Edinburgh, May 1768.
0: I hope you'd be convinced. Um, We're now going to uh, uh, move on to part three. We're going to talk about rhubarb. Um, Our physician is William Woodville, and his book, Medical Botany, is the book we're going to talk about. Now, uh, I did have a prop uh, provided by... Jane Hutchin of the, uh, who used to work at the Botanic Gardens at this point, and I was going to pull up uh, a stalk of rhubarb, but I left it next to uh, my waste paper bin, and the overzealous cleaners have, I'm afraid, <laughs> disposed of it. So you, you you have to imagine a bit of rhubarb, because um, uh, uh, the, the the book is William uh, Woodville's Medical Botany, um, and. Uh, Uh, Woodville is great. Uh, The the book um, really uh, uh, was the, um, it's here, it's it's smaller than Blackwell's Herbal, but it's really the book that followed on from Blackwell's Herbal. There are four volumes with uh, fantastic illustrations and uh, it published uh, around 1800. um, And it's uh, it's still a book that we use today because it's got great indexes um, and fantastic illustrations. Oh, and there's, there's a good story about Woodville, too. Uh, he was born in Cockermouth in Cumberland. Uh, he came from a family of well-to-do Quakers. He went to Edinburgh University, graduating MD in 1775. He returned to Cumberland to practise in Pabcastle until uh, an incident in 1778 interrupted his career. Uh, one night, he fired a gun through a window uh, and killed a man who'd been creating a disturbance in his garden. Um, uh, Although this was generally accepted as an accident, uh, Woodville was disowned by his Quaker meeting and moved to London. There, his career flourished. Um, and There's no trace of this institution now, um, and I'm quite regularly in the Euston Road and I look for it, because in London, uh, he was appointed physician to the London Smallpox and Inoculation Hospital at St. Pancras, a charitable institution offering care to smallpox victims and free inoculation and He actually um, uh, built up a botanic garden within the grounds of the smallpox hospital um, and it was the, a lot of the plants that he based his book on were in that garden, and the book was published between 1790 and 1794. Um, uh, He uh, describes lots of plants, including
1: rhubarb. Dr. Hope's account of the Rheum Palmatum, as it grew in the Botanic Garden near Edinburgh, had been read before the Royal Society at London. And of the great estimation in which this plant was held by him, we have the following proof. From the perfect similarity of this root, with the best foreign rhubarb in taste, smell, color, and purgative qualities, we cannot doubt of our being at last possessed of the plant which produces the true rhubarb and may reasonably entertain the agreeable expectations of its proving a very important acquisition to Britain. The qualities of this root are that of a gentle purgative, and so gentle that it is often inconvenient by reason of the bulk of the dose required, which in adults must be from half a dram to a dram. You might be
0: surprised to know that in the 18th century there was a rhubarb craze in Britain. Um, in 1762, Dr. Uh, James Mounsey returned from Russia to his native Scotland Uh, Mouncey had spent 25 years in Russia uh, working as a doctor for several Russian empresses, and he brought with him a rare prize. He'd smuggled in seeds that were proclaimed to be the true rhubarb. Uh, Sir Alexander Dick, who was a president uh, of the College of Physicians, uh, remembered a few years later that. Upon his arrival at Edinburgh, Mounsey presented me with a good parcel of the seeds, which I immediately sowed in my garden at Prestonfield. Um, Mounsey came to the college, um, where he was treated with the greatest respect, um, and uh, he brought true rhubarb seeds to the meeting, which were consigned to Dr. Hope, professor of botany in our university, who was laying out the Royal Physic Garden. And so, behind the Botanic Garden in Edinburgh, uh, by the late 1770s, 3,000 rhubarb plants were flourishing in an enclosed area. And Dick speaks of Hope's intent to serve the public after the proper number of years were elapsed and the roots fully matured. And he acclaims the goals of promoting the public good and the health of the people and of reducing the spending out of the kingdom to foreign parts of great sums of money for this article of commerce. He wasn't the the, the only person growing uh, rhubarb. Um, There was another physician growing rhubarb in Edinburgh in the garden of Canaan Lodge in Morningside. Uh, uh, James Gregory, who is actually behind me here and uh, also over here, uh, was busily uh, growing um, Turkestan rhubarb. And the roots provided Uh, one of the main constituents of his famous Gregory's powder or Gregory's mixture. This was a tremendously successful uh, medicine which uh, sold in vast quantities and was still being used in the 20th century. It was composed of powdered rhubarb, ginger, and magnesium oxide. Uh, I sometimes think that we are contractually uh, obliged to mention Gregory and Gregory's Powder here, and we're also contractually obliged to mention William Cullen, who you can see uh, on on the frieze um, up here. Now, uh, Cullen was another 18th century president of the college. And as I've mentioned, we have a a temperature-controlled strong room in uh, the basement of one of these buildings. And uh, Cullen's correspondence is one of the uh, real treasures that we have here, which doesn't sound that interesting. But it's actually uh, the records of an 18th century mail order medical practice. Uh, We have um, all the letters that were sent to Cullen and uh, copies of his replies. Um, this year, we just launched a website. We've been involved in a big project with Glasgow University to digitize um, and to transcribe all the Cullen correspondence. Um, and if you go to the Cullen project, uh, you will, you'll find it. And you can put your names in to see if uh, anybody with your names were, was writing to Cullen in the 18th century. And it's uh, uh, it's a nice website to browse through, but it's also academically very interesting. And here you can see that there are actually 185 records to rhubarb uh, in the Cullen correspondence. It's um, uh, put together in cases, and Elaine is going to read uh, a letter written to Cullen in June 1779 from Torthicken
1: in Edinburgh. Sir, It gives me infinite pleasure that I can inform you that your little patient, Frank Cunningham, has turned stronger and better every day since he arrived here. I'm confident that in a very short time he will be quite recovered. The only bad symptom I see about him is a great bigness in his belly, which I think must proceed either from a very great weakness or worms, and also a great appetite. If you can think of anything that could be of service to him on a little gentle physic, I will be obliged to you to let me know and believe to be with the greatest esteem your obliged, humble servant, Catherine Gillen.
0: Cullen replied with a relatively extraordinary prescription. Uh, Mrs. Gillen, case of Master Frank Cunningham, Take five grains of crab's eyes, ten grains of magnesia alba, three grains of powdered electuary of rhubarb. Make a powder of it to be taken in case of emergency. Uh, it ought to open his belly without much purging, and if it purges him much, the doses must either be given more seldom or the medicine changed." Okay. Um, uh, We thought that you'd all be completely lost by this stage, and it might be a good idea to have a recap um, and just remind you of uh, some of the people that we've talked about and the few others um, as we come towards the end that we're still going to talk about. Um, uh, We we got our our high-tech IT team to see if we could do something better with the linkages, because Elaine was worried that that wasn't clear. They spent ages on it and they came up with this. <laughs> so um, uh, I hope that's making things much clearer. Uh, I will now move on to Lettuce, Dr. Andrew Duncan and the Flopsy Bunnies. Elaine.
1: Mr. McGregor's rubbish heap was a mixture. There were jam pots and paper bags and mountains of chopped grass from the mowing machine, which always tasted oily, and some rotten vegetable marrows and an old boot or two. One day, oh joy, there was a quantity of overgrown lettuces which had shot into flour. The Flopsy bunnies simply stuffed lettuces. By degrees, one after another, They were overcome with slumber and lay down in the mown grass. Benjamin was not so overcome as his children. Before going to sleep, he was sufficiently wide awake to put a paper bag over his head to keep off flies.
0: I really just put that in because poor Elaine has had to read all these memoirs of 18th-century male doctors, and it was nice to give her something different to do. Uh, But Woodville also um, uh, mentions lettuce.
1: This plant has a strong, ungrateful smell, resembling that of opium and a butterfish acrid taste. It abounds with a milky juice in which its sensible qualities seem to reside, and which appears to have been noticed by Dioscorides, who describes the odor and taste of this juice as nearly agreeing with that of the white poppy. Its effects are also said, according to Haller, to be powerfully narcotic.
0: Um, We'll digress uh, again briefly and talk about Andrew Duncan. Um, uh, Andrew Duncan, who uh, is over here, was born in 1744 near Crail in Fife. Uh, He founded a journal, the uh, groundbreaking and financially successful medical and philosophical commentaries. Um, uh, He graduated in in medicine at St. Andrews. In 1776, he established the dispensary for the sick poor, providing care for the poor and cases for teaching purposes. And he became uh, a president of the college. And at his first meeting um, uh, here, he Uh, started a committee um, to examine the possibility of establishing a lunatic asylum, the introduction of general inoculation against smallpox, the creation of vapour baths, and the improvement of facilities for cold bathing. So he was an energetic uh, president, um, and in fact, the, the Royal Edinburgh Hospital in Edinburgh traces its roots back to the asylum started by Andrew Duncan. Uh, He also founded social clubs, including the Aesculapian Society, which was supposed to bring the uh, uh, fractious physicians and surgeons together. It's a society which still exists now. Um, He possibly wasn't the most modest of men, and here's Andrew
1: Duncan's description of
0: himself.
1: With the most strict adherence to truth, I can say I was remarkable for being a good-natured boy and I have, I believe, generally retained the character of being a good-natured man during the whole course of my life.
0: Um, Henry Coburn in his Memorials of Our Time wasn't
1: quite as kind. A curious old Edinburgh character, Duncan was a kind-hearted and excellent man. Scientific ambition, Charitable restlessness and social cheerfulness made Duncan thrust himself into everything throughout a long life. He was very fond of gardening and rather a good botanist. This made him president of the Horticultural Society, which he oppressed annually with a dull discourse.
0: Um, And one of the discourses uh, Duncan gave to the newly formed Caledonian Horticultural Society was on the preparation of soporific medicines from common garden lettuce. He'd obtained a small quantities of a milky white fluid from the stems of lettuce, which he painstakingly converted into powder form. He was after an alternative to opium and two prize medals were offered on this theme, one for the best method of preparing a soporific medicine from the juice of the common lettuce and the other for the best method of cultivating poppies and preparing opium. Uh, slightly worryingly, there was an anesthesia uh, meeting um, next door in our conference center on Thursday and Friday and quite a few of the anesthetists stuck out and came to this talk. So if next time you're in hospital, you're fed lettuce before an operation, you, we may be responsible. Um, Duncan uh, also found time for his great hobby, which was gardening. Um, He had a garden near Arthur's seat, uh, with here's health uh, inscribed at the entrance. And he says, in that small garden I may be found almost every summer morning before breakfast, obtaining from it both amusement and health. Uh, This is the uh, young Duncan in Kay's portraits. Uh, and this is the, the older Duncan. So I think uh, the health thing obviously worked for, uh, for Duncan. Um, he loved lists and he kept records of the garden. For instance, he recorded the annual produce of his two jargonel pear trees, uh, which ranged from 53 dozen in 1803 to a miserable three dozen in 1812. Um, he started uh, a gardening society, the Caledonian Horticultural Society, and they actually met in the George Street Hall of the Royal College of Physicians. Um, the society was supposed to um, uh, encourage and improve the cultivation of the best fruits, of the most choice flowers, and of the most useful culinary vegetables. Um, we have lots of beautiful books here, but we've also got um, uh, more minor um, items of correspondence. And here's a letter from uh, the Secretary of the Caledonian Horticultural Society to the President of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh.
1: Sir. I am directed by the Council of the Caledonian Horticultural Society to beg your acceptance, the sincere thanks of the Society for the permission of holding their meetings in the Hall of the Royal College of Physicians at Edinburgh. They also desire me to request that the College will accept a few apples and pears which accompany this letter and have this day been produced in competition for prizes they've given directions to their treasurer to keep the ground round the hall in the best possible order. They are sorry, however, to say that their attempts to get beautiful, exotic shrubs to grow in a situation necessarily so much exposed to smoke, they've been fruitless. It has been fruitless. I am, sir, your very obedient servant, Pat Neill, Secretary, Caledonian Horticultural Society.
0: It's interesting to see the reference to pollution and smoke um, and the earliest uh, picture we have of this hall was a photograph taken about 1900 and the ceiling is almost completely black from uh, the general Edinburgh pollution and also from the oil lights that used to light the hall and presumably from the fires that burnt in the fireplaces on either side. Okay we're finishing with Belladonna. Professor Michael Lee is our physician and his book uh, Plants, Healer, Healers and Killers uh, is, is the book. Now we're not going into Professor Lee's biography because uh, happily he's still with us. Um, uh, uh, but actually uh, we're going to talk about Belladonna and one of the classic descriptions of Belladonna is uh, by Andrew Duncan in the Edinburgh New Dispensatory, um, in which he claimed that uh, uh, Belladonna could be used to successfully treat the plague and conditions such as paralysis, epilepsy, whooping cough, melancholy and mania. Uh, Woodville
1: also mentions Belladonna. It has certainly long been known as a strong poison of the narcotic kind and the berries, though less powerful than the leaves, furnish us with many instances of their fatal effects, particularly upon children, who are readily attempted to eat this fruit by its alluring appearance and sweet taste. When a greater number of the berries are taken into the stomach, scarcely half an hour elapses before violent symptoms supervene, viz vertigo, delirium, great thirst, painful swallowing and retching, followed by coma, which generally precedes death. It may be necessary to remark that vinegar, liberally drunk, has been found very efficacious in obviating the effects of this poison. Evacuations should, however, be always first promoted. Dr. Cullen repeatedly experienced its inefficacy, yet... The facts he adduces in confirmation of the utility of this plant are clear and decisive. I've had a cancer of the lip entirely cured by it. A sore a little below the eye which had put on a cancerous appearance was much mended by the internal use of the belladonna. But the patient, having learned somewhat of the poisonous nature of the medicine, refuted to continue the use of it upon which the saw again spread and was painful.
0: The uh, atropa in the um, atropa belladonna comes from atropos, one of the three fates who decided on the death of every living being. And the plant itself is known as uh, atropa belladonna or beautiful lady. Uh, So-called because of its pupil dilating properties
1: As early as the 16th century, Italian women used drops of the nightshade berry juice to give them that fashionable, wide-eyed look.
0: Um, About 20 years ago, and this is a story that's covered in Professor Lee's book, uh, there was an extraordinary incident that happened in Edinburgh, um, as uh, Elaine
1: will tell you. On a late summer's evening in 1994 in Athelston Ford, East Lothian, Alexandra Agatha took a cool and refreshing gin and tonic. But something was not quite right. The taste of her G&T was too bitter. In minutes, Alexandra would grow delirious. Her vision blurred and her mouth became dry. Her husband, Paul Agatha, A biology professor at nearby Edinburgh Napier University called their GP. There was no answer, so he left a message. Alexandra's symptoms continued to worsen. But thankfully for her, another doctor had picked up Paul's message and alerted the emergency services. Finally, paramedics arrived and Alexandra was taken to hospital where it was discovered that she'd been poisoned with atropine.
0: Uh, Alexandra was not alone, as was reported in The Independent, uh, with a headline, Four Ill After Drinking Poisoned Water. This was on Tuesday the 30th of
1: August 1994. Tonic water from an Edinburgh supermarket, which poisoned four people, was contaminated by a derivative of deadly nightshade, detectives said last night. Safeway was forced to withdraw stocks from supermarket shelves across the country after the foreign substance was found in bottles bought from its Hunter's Trist store. Detectives have still not determined whether the tonic water had been poisoned deliberately. Elizabeth Smith, 45, and her 18-year-old son Andrew from Edinburgh were taken to hospital last Friday after drinking Safeway's own brand tonic water. They were released after treatment. Yesterday it was disclosed that a second woman, Alexandra Agatha, 39, and her 11-year-old daughter Beatrice were also treated in hospital on Sunday after drinking tonic water brought at the Hunter's Trist store. Detective Superintendent John McGowan of Lothian and Borders Police said that officers had yet to establish how the poison had got into the tonic water, or a motive for the act.
0: Uh, Luckily, clues abounded.
1: First came Alexandra's gin and tonic. The concentration of atropine in her glass was higher than in the tonic bottles recovered from the supermarket. How could this be? Then, there was the evidence of a Napier student, who was working in the Safeway store. He'd seen a man putting bottles of tonic water back on the shelves. Finally, CCTV cameras established that Alexandra's husband, Paul, was in the store at the time. Paul Agata, a biology professor at Edinburgh's Napier University, had financial worries and was under pressure to marry his mistress, a mature student at Napier. He hatched a plan to poison his wife using atropine, which he was able to buy in his role as a researcher. Four days before, Agatha laced bottles of tonic water with the drug and put them on the shelves at Safeway. In the end, Alexandra had a lucky escape. She didn't drink the whole drink because it was so bitter and her husband had also miscalculated the amount which would be needed to kill her
0: so paul agator uh, was not only poisoning his own wife he was trying to poison a whole lot of other people to throw suspicion on uh, some uh, external source uh, he was convicted of the crime and he spent uh, 12 years in uh, he got a 12 year sentence of which he spent uh, seven years in prison. Uh, There's a sort of strange postscript to this story too, because um, when he was released from prison, um, he got a job as an ethics teacher at uh, Manchester
1: University in
0: 2003. Um,
1: Atropine the beautiful, atropine the deadly, whichever way you look at it, atropine is not to be trifled with. And beware a bitter g and
0: So just finish by saying that uh, it's actually quite appropriate to finish in gin and tonic because uh, quinine uh, is an ingredient of tonic and, of course, was uh, used in the 18th century as uh, a cure for malaria or fever. Uh, quinine was also known as Jesuit's bark, and we know that quite a lot of people wouldn't take what was known to be an effective medicine because they were Protestants and didn't want to take Jesuits' bark. So it poses the question that um, uh, if Sybil got malaria, it would depend on what religion he was practicing, whether he would take the cure or not. Uh, Thank you very much for coming. I hope you found uh, some of it interesting. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash
1: heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.